Hey there, humanoids. This is David Shoemaker here with a very exciting announcement. Your favorite wrestling podcast feed, The Ringer Wrestling Show, is now going daily. And you can hang out with me and Kaz on Mondays and Thursdays for The Masked Man Show. And you can join me, Peter Rosenberg, alongside stack guy Greg and Dip every Tuesday with Cheap Heat. And on Fridays, I'll welcome a friend or special guest from the world of wrestling. And on Wednesdays, we have a very special new show called Wednesday Worldwide that you're going to want to check out. Pay-per-view reaction, one-of-a-kind interviews, fantasy booking, talking about bagels. That's what we do here on the Ringer Wrestling Show. Follow the show now on Spotify and do us a favor. Give us five stars. And do us another favor and uh, stay mage. It's Off the Pike presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Joining us now from the Herald, he is back. It is Andrew Callahan. Callahan, before we get started, man, congratulations. Recently married, man, congrats. Thank you very much. I am celebrating Father's Day by practicing for future Father's Day. I'll be asleep on the couch with an IPA in my stomach and golf on the TV. <laughs> uh, so it's a great it's a great day to be me, I, I would say. Yeah, that's not a bad day. Nice little uh, Sunday plan for you. Watch a little golf. Uh, hopefully Cam Smith, they took a Nice little FanDuel wager on him for plus 3,000 yesterday. So we'll see if Cam Smith can make a run for me. I need need Cam Smith to get it together here. But uh, by the time people are listening to this podcast, Cam Smith will finish like 30th in the tournament and I will not win any money on Cam Smith. But let's get to the Patriots because, of course, we enter the weekend. We're feeling good about the Pats because they get this visit from a guy by the name of DeAndre Hopkins. Pretty well-known receiver, Callahan. I mean, a lot of people have heard of him, right? So, but then... The Jack, Jack Jones news comes out on Friday night, arrested at Logan Airport, charged with two counts of the following, possession of a concealed weapon in a secure area of an airport, possession of ammunition without a firearm identification card, unlawful possession of a firearm, and possession of a large feeding device. So before we get into what this all means, can you go from a higher high to a lower low in basically what, like a three-hour period for the Patriots, or I, I should say like a 24-hour period? I think there was some decrescendo right from the Hopkins visit because there was some hope that, you know, outside the building, not inside yeah. the building, that he would sign on the dotted line, head into the offseason, fireworks pre 4th of July. Hopkins is here. You got a chance in the division. He leaves without a deal. It's described as a successful visit, but we're really coming back to the place where we should have expected anyway. 
he's going to wait until July and not fingers crossed somebody gets hurt, but fingers crossed that he gets another team in here to boost his leverage, get a little bit more money and squeeze it because there's nothing to do between now and then. Anyway, signing Thursday when he left wouldn't have made a ton of sense unless he got the exact deal that he wanted. Yeah. So we'll, I mean, we'll get to that in a second here, the Hopkins thing, but just from the Jack Jones situation from an NFL perspective, when do you think we hear anything like this is going to be a while, right? Like they sort of got to let the legal process play itself out here. That's the biggest part of this. And in the NFL, I think it's always important to keep in mind when they're quote unquote investigating, what they're doing is determining the best PR play. That's why you hear punishments leaked before they're actually enacted and why you have certain fan reaction dictate whether that's too harsh, that's not enough. And the NFL adjusts accordingly. They're not really interested in justice. They're looking as good as possible with respect to the punishments for these players, which is why they're also inconsistent. Now, no two incidents are identical, but there's a chance that this case very well goes on for a year, maybe close to two. So I don't think the NFL is going to be any sort of rush to judgment, especially when it's the Patriots call first, right? Like, do you want to have a guy on your team like this in training camp preseason when the games really count? The Patriots will make a call first before the league does. All right. So, yeah, let's get to this. So right now, obviously, we don't have all the details, as we just alluded to with the legal process, but we do know he's going to be arraigned this week. The Patriots in their statement said, We've been notified that Jack Jones was arrested at Logan Airport earlier today. We're in the this is on Friday. We're in the process of gathering more information and will not be commenting further at this time. So I guess we'll find out more next week. But based on these charges, it's tough for me, Callahan, to imagine like that he plays this season. Do you think that he'll play this year or do you think this is something like and I know like from an NFL perspective, like you said, they're waiting on the Patriots, but it's tough for me to imagine if like if he is eventually found guilty of these charges. Like I said, it's all alleged right now. But if he is eventually found guilty and the Patriots had him playing for the majority of the 2023 season, it's going to be a bad look at retrospect. So I, I feel like they're in a really tough spot here. The Patriots are, I should say. Yeah, certainly not as tough as Jack Jones. Let's say that for a guy who tried to bring guns onto an airplane in 2023 yeah. that were loaded, uh, allegedly unlicensed, etc. But no, you're right, because for the Patriots, you know, again, you're you're gaming out all of these different scenarios. That's the only beauty of having a month now when this happens at the end of your offseason. Yeah. What are we going to do July 26 when different players report? So what I would say as far as is he going to play this season, it's very similar to the answer of is he going to go to jail or prison? It looks very likely now that he will not play and that eventually he will go to jail or prison based on the information we have, which is super limited. But this is a complicated process. A lot of it involves the deals made between uh, Suffolk County District Attorney, where this is likely going to go with the particular charges, his attorney, all of the details that have yet to come out. So it's hard for me to say, especially now, and we just covered the NFL is much more in the PR business than the actual criminal justice business. So it's likely, but we can't guarantee anything yet as bad as this is for Jack Jones. And it is really, really bad. Yeah. And you also mentioned in your article that His selection in the fourth round surprised many inside and around the NFL who expected Jones to be drafted three rounds later or perhaps go undrafted. Now, based on his history, he was dismissed from USC, as you mentioned, for academic issues. He was arrested for attempting to break into a Panda Express. That's why the boss calls him Panda Jack. And so he was also suspended at Arizona State for violating team rules. And last year, he was suspended for the final two games of the season, obviously, for reportedly being late to rehab sessions. So I just look at it. He had the issues in college. He had the issues last year with the Patriots. And look, I'm not comparing the two issues. One is way more serious than the other one. But I have to imagine the Patriots at this particular point in time, 
have got to be having buyer's remorse because they've been already burned by this guy twice since they drafted him. And he hasn't even been a member of the organization for what, a year and a half. Well, I think you feel like Jack Jones should right now. And that's a little stupid, you know, in Jack Jones's case, it's a lot stupid, right? But for them, you know, I went back to the transcript when we spoke with Macro, director of player personnel, basically Bill's consigliere, Belichick's consigliere in the personnel department. And the question was twofold. How much effort did you put into researching this guy's background? Because Google in the first page, maybe the first three results tells you this is probably a bad guy. Secondly, how did you get comfortable with that? And he just said, we spent a lot of time with Jack. We put a ton of effort into it. We feel good about this. But as I mentioned, that fourth round selection was way higher. And you could go with Mel Kuyper, Todd McShay, um, Dane Brugler, any of these guys, Danny Kelly would tell you that no one expected this because of the background. Lo and behold, as you mentioned, it's not just been one season that he couldn't finish. It's back involved in legal trouble for something that any five-year-old going through TSA knows no, I can't bring a gun, not just a real gun, a loaded gun, but a play Nerf gun that that five-year-old might have. And lo and behold, here's a 25-year-old man trying to get through TSA with two. Yeah, I just, I can't imagine like what the, and I don't want to try to get into his head, like what he was thinking at that particular point in time. But how did you think, even like the thought of bringing guns onto an airplane in and of itself is ridiculous, but how did you think you were going to get past security? Like, it almost scares me in a sense. Like, has he has he tried to do this before and he it worked? Like, it, and I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to make uh, guesses of what he was thinking, but that's kind of scary. The fact that he thought he was going to get onto the plane with those. Yeah, I mean, when this broke Friday night, I'll be totally honest in the behind the scenes that no one really cares about. But my family thought I had a momentary like fit of Tourette's when this happens because I'm ready to go into Father's Day weekend, you know, have some beers, hang out good quality family time. This breaks. And of course, you just got to jump. You got to write the story, call the state police, get in contact with some defense attorneys. And one of the strange things that I heard after I calmed down was that this is not as uncommon as you think. Now, so far, according to the TSA numbers, this is at least a ninth incident of someone trying to get through Logan with a gun. Granted, nine out of probably over a million people at this point in the year, uh, 2023, have gone through you know the various terminals, let alone Terminal B for Jack Jones. Now, I don't think those eight, nine people are missing any Mensa meetings here, but it's a lot that I've learned, I will say, in the last 48 hours, whether it's the legalese, the different charges, where these are all felonies and that's serious. But there are a couple here that carry mandatory minimum sentences. And that's the starting point for a lot of this conversation. If it's not only Massachusetts is not a gun-friendly state, like his native California, by the way, which could come into play depending if he has a license over there, something else that we don't know. But it's the amount of travel he's already had through Logan as a member of the Patriots or TF Green. So I don't know what was in his head. I just know that the dig, the deeper you dig into this, the more trouble he seems to be in. And yet again, as I said at the start, we can't really project whether it's on the football side or the legal side, because with a lot of the other people that have this issue, whether it's through an airport, which is obviously a lot stupider, or in your car or just some sort of incident, deals get made all the time between defense attorneys and the state to reduce these charges. But this is a high profile case. There are a lot of different variables and balls in the air. Uh, and one of which is, yeah, what was going through his mind. But that's so far down the list of yeah. what the hell just happened. It's almost not worth exploring as incredible and amazing as whatever that was or lack thereof going through his head at the time. Yeah. So Callahan, as you mentioned, like some of the punishments here, one of the charges, if he is found guilty, it'd be mandatory, what, 2.5 year, two and a half years, right? Yeah. And again, this is where it gets complicated because in traditional deals, you know, as in my understanding and speaking to several defense attorneys within the state and then the state police briefly on, on the details of the charges, some of these can get broken up 
And so you have the two and a half years that are officially on the books. And every one of my mentions after Jack Jones gets arrested is taking the same screenshot from these different law firms that have every law in the book. And I'm like, okay, that's great. But what's it like in the room, whether that's the courtroom, whether it's a conference room where they're deliberating and kind of going back and forth on a plea deal. And my understanding is that 18 months is basically as low as you can go with the mandatory minimum sentences. And as I mentioned, you know, some of these charges could be taken care of uh, within the district court where he's going to be arraigned in East Boston. Others, it seems, because there's a different level of felony, like a murder, for instance. You're not trying a murder in a district court. You're going to superior court where someone needs right. to be indicted. There are a couple charges here where it's likely he'll need to be indicted by a grand jury. It could take four to six weeks. In that case, those are not only becoming high profile cases dragging in the Suffolk County DA who now needs to kind of perform in the spotlight. But those are um, that's a penalty he can't serve concurrently with the other uh, penalties. So basically, mm. the jail time can't be 18 months all at the same time for four different charges. It would need to be 18 months on top of another 18 months day to day to day with no chance of parole. So, again, I talk about balls in the air. That's just a glimpse of what I've been able to discern. And I'm still learning and making calls as we speak. Yeah. And I am going with the assumption going forward and just looking at this whole situation that he's not going to be playing for the Patriots in 2023. It'd be tough if I was a betting man, which I am. It'd be very tough for me <laughs> to imagine that he plays for the Patriots next season or probably ever again. So on the field, you mentioned that he worked with the starting defense in your article and all the team drills. And if you look at him last year, from Pro Football Focus, he had a 76 coverage grade, which was second among rookie corners behind only this guy by the name of Sauce Gardner, who's already like maybe the best corner in the NFL. Passer rating against was 63.1, which was third among rookies. So he had a really good year. And then the injury, the rehab and stuff. And it felt like this corner group was starting to make a lot of sense with Jonathan Jones going into the inside, playing the slot. And then you have the rookie stud Christian Gonzalez on the outside, along with Jack Jones, right? And if you look at the Patriots defense last year, and I'm not saying this is just because Jack Jones missed time, but after the Jack Jones injury, 21st and in dropback EPA per play, 21st and dropback success rate. Before the injury, they were first in dropback EPA and they were first in dropback success rate. And like I said, I'm not saying this is all because you lost Jack Jones. There were clearly other issues going on with the Patriots, but it's just kind of unfortunate for the Patriots on the field. And look, the off the field stuff is way more serious and everything along those lines. But on the field, this is a gut punch for a team that it felt like this defense was really shaping up with Jack Jones and Christian Gonzalez as your main two corners, so to speak, on the outside. Well, you look at what they did and did not do in the offseason, and aside from adding Christian Gonzalez, which was a significant move, especially for Belichick, a corner that high, 17th overall pick, and gambled correctly that he would drop from 14 to 17, you get him, you look, okay, that's a starting caliber corner, question mark. Okay, The other two candidates were Jonathan Jones, who did it last year, ideally profiles as a number two, Jalen Mills, who since moved back to safety, though it looks like that might be just a three-month vacation for him if he's moved back to corner, and Jack Jones. Fast forward to minicamp, Jack Jones is not only the best cornerback on the field, in my opinion, of these two practices, granted they were competitive, um, he was the best player on the field, wow. intercepting Mac Jones in seven-on-sevens, an interception on Monday, had one working with the scout team. It could have been a different story if they were pads and their run game was more involved. But from a passing game standpoint, which is a lot of camp, he was the best player in the field. So you look wow. at now three starting caliber corners down to two if you don't include Jalen Mills, and one of which is a rookie. So as freaky talented and athletic as Christian Gonzalez is, at least Jack Jones felt like a good plan B or even a plan A1 to start the season. Now you're just down to Jonathan Jones, who ideally you'd have in the slot, Christian Gonzalez, maybe Jalen Mills, and you just don't feel good about that going up against Stefan Diggs, Tyreek Hill, and Garrett Wilson. Yeah, and you did feel good about it just 
two days ago because you had these yeah. two guys. It's like, hey, if the Gonzalez thing really works out, which I'm optimistic, I love the pick at the time, Callahan, and I know you like the pick as well. If he works out and you have Jack Jones, it feels like this is going to be a really good defense. So just piggybacking off that, you look at it now. Last season, the Patriots defense was really good, despite the fact that they didn't win against good quarterbacks. The numbers overall were pretty good in terms of fifth in success rate, third in EPA per play, second in scoring percentage, 54 sacks tied with Dallas. Only the Eagles and the Chiefs had more. Judon had a big year. Uche had his breakout season, which we had sort of been waiting for it happen. Uche had a really outstanding season. You added Gonzalez, as we mentioned. You added Keon White. So what now? Could you make a case that the Patriots are a top three defense? Are they a top five defense? I mean, would you go as high as they have the possibility to be number one? Where do you think it stands now, considering that it looks unlikely that Jack Jones is going to be part of the equation as well? I think even with Jack Jones on the roster, the chances of them finishing as the number one defense and pick scoring DVOA, you know, I, I yeah. wouldn't encourage using yards. EPA certainly would be at the yeah. top of the list. Uh, it was under 5% because just from the schedule standpoint, you look at how good this team is. And you mentioned the split from when Jack Jones got hurt that Monday night game against Arizona. They had four games after that. A couple quarterbacks they faced in that four game stretch were Josh Allen and Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow who had almost 300 yards by halftime. That's going to drag <laughs> down your defensive rankings. I don't care who is on your roster or who is not. So for them, when you have the hardest opposing schedule in the league, and you could divide this yeah. between offense and defense, but it's, you know, offensively, you start with the Eagles and then you go into the Dolphins and that, that's no treat. We all know who's in the division. I don't think they're ever going to get there. When you take Jack Jones out, I think it's much more unlikely. And part of it is because what drove those numbers last year are not only that, you know, you had guys emerging like Uche and Duggar, but they scored something like seven or eight defensive touchdowns. That's something you cannot count on this year being replicated and being sticky year to year, which overall defensive performance of people who are deeper in analytics than I am, as I like to dip my toe in maybe a little less than you up to your knees, shoulders, nipples, I don't know, is that <laughs> defensive performance overall is not that sticky. So it's really hard to predict as much as I'm writing the second day of minicamp going, I'm already in on the defense. It's fast. It's rangy. It's yeah. multiple. It's going to be violent given the players that we have there. And yet, They'll win you some games. You cannot count on them as the Patriots tried to do last year to carry you through an entire season. Okay, well, that's a good point, because speaking of that, let's get to the other big news when we talk about the offense here, because DeAndre Hopkins, he was in the building Wednesday and Thursday. No deal is done yet, but clearly he isn't visiting the Patriots if he's not interested, right? And secondarily, the Patriots have got to be in like a pretty good area in terms of what they're going to offer financially, because if they don't bring, if he comes to the building and he has no idea what they're willing to offer, it doesn't really make sense for either side. But how do you think they feel right now? They Are they optimistic that they're going to land DeAndre Hopkins? Because it does seem like, and look, maybe he waits until training camp to see if there's an injury or something along those lines. And we know there's been some history where maybe he doesn't really like to practice. So maybe he's, he's not in a rush to sign with any team. But they have to feel at least pretty optimistic if it's now, it seems like it's between them and the Tennessee Titans at this point, right? At this juncture. Right. Uh, my understanding is the same understanding that a lot of people have reported on. The Patriots feel good about the place they're in with Hopkins. They feel it was a successful visit. But I think you and I were texting actually the other day about, um, you know, where that might come from. It was something adjacent to the whole Hopkins conversation. And you're actually like, why, why do you think they feel that good? I'm like, it could still very well be, despite being 25 and 26 the last three years, this kind of inherent institutional arrogance that comes with the Patriots because, look, you are the best 20-year run in NFL history. 
that gets more distant by the day, but that the, the rub off of that is still in the building. So maybe they say, we sold them on the Patriot way, how we're going to do things, how you're going to be featured. If we're competitive enough, like they were in all those Brady years, mind you, you look at the roster, it still looks like they're operating as if Tom Brady's playing quarterback. Um, then maybe they they believe it. Or because they made the same offer as the Titans, and you go, how in the world could you pick to play with Ryan Tannehill and name me four Titans? This is a good game we should play later, uh, <laughs> aside from Derrick Henry, you know, th- instead of coming to New England. I don't buy their competence outright. I think, obviously, a positive visit is better than a negative one. But all along, I'm, I believe it made most sense for Hopkins to kind of leave, sign what he wants. Maybe another team jumps in. You miss a week of training camp. Oh, no, the guy's 31. He's made five Pro Bowls. He knows how to play football, not to mention he's already been in the system with Bill O'Brien before. Yeah, so I look at it, too. The Tennessee thing is interesting to me because I was thinking, wait, didn't they have this A.J. Brown guy? Like, wouldn't it have been easier just to keep this guy? Now they're trying to get DeAndre Hopkins, who is on the other side of 30. You had one of the best young receivers in the NFL, and you tra- you willingly traded that guy away. They just feel like an absolute joke to me. So from an organizational standpoint, you would think that the Patriots have the upper hand on the Tennessee Titans when it comes to that. But just like when we look at it money-wise, we heard that he's looking for something around the Odell Beckham Jr. range, where Odell Beckham Jr. got one year for 15, a little over 13 million of that is guaranteed. Do you think the Patriots would go there on like a two-year deal or would it have to be more incentive-based? Like, where do you think they would be willing to go with this one? So I laid out a couple contract options on my podcast with Doug Kai last week, Pat's Interference Podcast. Check it out, Spotify, Spotify only. Um, and my thinking was there's precedent here. About nine, 10 years ago when the Patriots signed Darrell Rebus, another um, you know veteran player, well-established in the league, where you could kind of buy low on him. Like I think DeAndre Hopkins at some point, even if it's just 1%, has to be a little humbled by this process where the whole market has told him, you are not worth what you think you are. That's $19.1 million plus an asset from the Cardinals who eventually have to cut you. So it could have been probably just a seventh round pick and they would trade it away. They cut him in late May. Here we are in mid-June. No one has signed them despite taking multiple visits. So as the Patriots end, I think like they did with Revis, it was a two-year deal that nominally made him the highest paid player at his position in the league, but it was backloaded and they had an out after the first year. So if you go, okay, Jonathan Hopkins, you want to make 15, 16, $17 million a year. And my understanding is that he was holding fast at that 19 million early in the process, was only going to mm. take a cut for the Cowboys who said, thanks, but no thanks and acquired Brandon Cooks instead. If he wants to be in the high teens, the first year is going to be 10, 11, maybe 12, like we did with the Revis. The back end can be 20, whatever. But we're going to have an out in the middle where, yeah, you can say from an APY standpoint, you're the highest paid receiver. You've been made whole. It's still $19 million per year, even though it's kind of fake money. So for the Patriots, as far as the OBJ contract, I think that's been a huge pain in their ass as well as other teams trying to sign receivers. Because if you're Hopkins, rightfully so, I talk about being humbled. He can still say this. Odell Beckham Jr. played zero snaps last year. He has not scared defensive coordinators since 2018, maybe 2017, okay? I'm still a three-time All-Pro. I got suspended, sure. But when I came back in week seven, from there on, I led the league in catches and was fourth in receiving yards. Mind you, also caught passes from Colt McCoy and Trace McSorley. I'm a dog. (laughs) I'm a guy. I've played. Pay me my money. And it has to start with the $15 million guaranteed, which could go up to 18 with incentives in Baltimore for OBJ. And that's where things get tricky. It's just going to be time and a lack of offers that I think brings us down unless the Patriots want to get creative with easily acquired or, or fulfilled incentives or the two-year deal, like I mentioned, where, okay, you can go tell everyone you're making $19 million a year again, but we're probably going to cut ties after year one. Yeah, it is a fascinating situation because it's like, okay, this guy is 
before like, hey, I'm taking a team friendly deal so I can win a Super Bowl, right? Like he's still, even if you want to say a little bit post prime, he's still one of the best receivers in the NFL. And I was talking about the other day, he had this list of quarterbacks he wanted to play for in the I Am Athlete podcast, and he listed them all, and none of those teams make sense for him. Like, those teams, <laughs> they don't need DeAndre Hopkins, and in some cases, they don't have the financial ability to sign DeAndre Hopkins to a contract that he wants. So he's in sort of this weird place, which brings me back to the Patriots portion of this. It was leading Sports Center that DeAndre Hopkins was visiting the Patriots. It's the biggest story here locally. The fact that the Celtics right now are there's multiple reports they're looking to move a guard. Nobody's talking about that at all because DeAndre Hopkins and now this Jack Jones story, of course, as well. But now I think about this going forward. We all knew that he was visiting the Patriots for two days. If they don't land DeAndre Hopkins, I got to imagine this is really going to burn Bill. And I feel like from some perspective, like obviously you go for the player, but it's going to be a tough look for them if they don't land him, Callahan, now. See, I can't go that far, but where I think it will hurt most is, okay, the Titans sign him or whomever for what we all see as a reasonable deal given his talent, though you could argue the Pat, the best football in his career is behind him. He's a contestant catch guy, not getting that much separation. You already have a few of those. He's still the best receiver in New England, but let's say he goes elsewhere. The Patriots are then asked, okay, well, what are you going to do with that 14 plus million dollars of cap space? What are you doing with the cash that's laying around? Because you continue to be among yeah. the least lowest spending teams, most frugal teams in the league the last four, five, six years. You're not spending it on a guy like him. Who are you spending it on? Because I was on the record multiple times thinking they were going to go big in this free agency period. Again, not just because of the cap, because of the cash. So if they go eight, nine again, and everyone's looking at DeAndre Hopkins having another 12, 1300-yard season, going, why the hell didn't you sign him? You had all the ammunition, a limited market, and you couldn't seal the deal. Why, why, why? And that fall would fall in another long line of decisions with Bill Belichick that you go, Matt Patricia's running the offense. Okay, Joe Judge is going to be the quarterback's coach. Okay, we're not throwing the ball at Buffalo, even though we won the game in the 2020 and the whole Cam Newton experience. Like, if his decision-making is undermined yet again, that's where you start to go, how can we game this out with him moving forward if we can't trust him to make decisions now in the last couple of years to be our head coach, even if he's that close to Don Shula? So that it wouldn't be now that would hurt so much. It's more down the line. Yeah, that's a good thought, too. I didn't think of it from the money angle. That's what people are going to run with. Oh, you couldn't signed DeAndre Hopkins to what the Tennessee Titans did. You're ch- you're cheap like that. W- that definitely you're 100 percent right. That is going to be the storyline if they don't land DeAndre Hopkins. All right. So I was looking at it, too. You mentioned since when he came back from the injury, he led the league in receptions per game. But if you look at it still in the season, 79.7 yards, 10th, 7.1 receptions, fourth. He was 11 of 21 on contested targets via pro football focus. He's you know, he's sort of like a rebounder, he three double digit touchdown seasons. And as you mentioned, he wasn't playing with the best quarterbacks in the world because Kyler Murray went down. Even I don't think Kyler Murray is one of the best quarterbacks in the world, but I digress. You get the point. So I don't want to sound like Captain Obvious here, but you think about it. Juju Smith-Schuster, that signing starts to make a lot more sense if he's your number two guy, right? Kendrick Bourne starts to make a lot more sense as the number three or number four option wherever he is. Devontae Parker, we'll see what happens with him long term. But Tyquan Thornton, less pressure on a guy coming into his second year in the NFL. I mean, I'm all in if they're they get DeAndre Hopkins and for the quarterback too. like how many times have we talked about the fact that he doesn't have a legitimate bona fide number one option. And it's really if you look across the NFL, Callahan, it's really difficult to find a team that for a quarterback, they don't legitimately have a number one option. And the Patriots have been living in this neighborhood really since what, 2019 Edelman, I know he was good in 19, but he was banged up at the end of the season. They've been doing this for a long time with their quarterbacks, whether it be Cam Newton, Tom Brady's final year, and now entering year three with Mac. 
And the thing about the DeAndre Hopkins acquisition or pick any number one receiver that we discussed briefly, I was on the Keenan Allen trade. Okay, maybe they trade for Jerry Judy. Is there's a ripple effect. And as you mentioned, it sets the rest of the depth chart in order. Juju Smith-Schuster is your number two. Great. Devontae Parker and Kendrick Bourne battle off the number three. Great. Tyquan Thornton, our second round pick, you know, which has a scary history of receivers being taken in that round for the Patriots coming off the bench. Fine. Mind you, this is also an offense that ran almost exclusively 12 personnel with their two tight ends through most of minicamp and OTAs. Part of that is injuries. But if I'm a Patriots fan or anyone playing fantasy football right now, I'm buying low. On, I'm not buying. I'm selling on Juju Smith-Schuster because you look at his two best seasons. He was across from an all-pro in Travis Kelsey, across from yep. an all-pro in Antonio Brown. This is a guy who Mike Tomlin was ready to get rid of. Andy Reid and the Chiefs didn't make a big push to re-sign. He's got his money now. He plays in the slot, the same position you want to have Mike Kosicki in. What does that look like? But if DeAndre Hopkins is here, he not only gives Juju likely a one-on-one matchup, he might draw doubles. He gives a single to everybody else, kind of clears the picture for Mac Jones, and especially in third down in the red zone when defenses are trying to spin the dial and muddy up that picture. And we can't forget that the Patriots were the worst red zone defense or close to it statistically in the league last year. You need guys like this that you can get the ball to when it matters most and makes it easier on the rest of his teammates, which is exactly what DeAndre Hopkins would do. Yeah, the Patriots red zone offense last year was a joke. It was anemic. And just having that bailout guy, if you will, that you can throw the football up to and just like on third down, it's like, hey, DeAndre Hopkins, throw it to that guy. He's going to make a contested catch. We've seen him do it for nearly a decade in the NFL. All right, Callahan. So before we let you go, I did this whole thing the other day about like ranking the great off seasons in Boston sports history, like 2018 Red Sox, 04 Red Sox, 14 Patriots when they got Darrell Revis, 03, of course, that's when they signed Rodney Harrison, who'd become part of two Super Bowl winning teams with the team. So I went through like since the past 25 years or so. So I was looking at this and the reason I did this list was because Number one corner, you think you drafted that in Christian Gonzalez. Competent offensive coordinator, you got that in Bill O'Brien, right? I mean, that's big. I mean, you need a competent offensive coordinator. That's something they didn't have last year. So you have competence at the offensive coordinator position. And then a number one receiver, if the hypothetical comes true, that you land DeAndre Hopkins. So if you look at it from just a Patriots perspective, where this would rank, you think 2010, you drafted Gronk and Hernandez, obviously the Gronk thing one of the maybe the second best player non-Brady division in this run, if you will. Then you also drafted McCourty that year as well. 01, they drafted Seymour and Matt Light. 03, I mentioned the Rodney signing. 07, it's kind of a big one. You get this guy, Randy Moss and Wes Welker in the same offseason. The good old days. Yeah. How, I mean, how far away do these feel now, just as you go oh, through them? I'm enjoying it. I think people at home are enjoying it. But how far away do these feel now? So far, man, it's incredible that it's been that long. And I, 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 I was like looking through like the Patriots offseason list and I'm like, oh, my God, they got Randy Moss and they got Wes Welker in the same offseason. And then 14, I mentioned Revis comes in and he's the ultimate hired guy. I mean, the guy was obviously incredible for the Patriots. So if they do, let's go with the hypothetical. We're trying to be positive here to end the podcast because it was kind of negative at the beginning, right, with the Jack Jones situation. So if they land DeAndre Hopkins, where would this offseason rank for you? So first off, I don't give Belichick or the Patriots credit for hiring Bill O'Brien, because if you burn your couch, okay, and you go out to Bob's discount furniture and get a new one, look, you need a place to sit, okay? This is very central to the whole living room operation. If you want to have an offense, you need to not set it on fire by inviting Matt Patricia into your house and running the show with Joe Judge. Mind you, Belichick had a big hand in that, but he doesn't get credit for just replacing the couch with Bill O'Brien. Secondly, I'll go top half. Okay, like you listed off of all those great years. 
2012 was a great draft. 2013 was solid, even though they didn't pick to the second round with Jamie Collins. You know, the free agency work in 17, Stefan Gilmore has to be mentioned. Yeah. 18, a lot of these discount, like the, the pick swap trades, which I, I missed dearly, but I think the rest of the league caught up on, you know, we'll give you a six uh, for, you know, Jason McCourty in a seventh. Danny Shelton was in that same mold with Cleveland, just picking off veterans left and right that contribute to that run in Super Bowl, uh, their last Super Bowl win. So, yeah, it would be in the top half, but the biggest piece is DeAndre Hopkins because him and Christian Gonzalez coming up, coming back, stabilizing the franchise when you're the one that tore it down. I can't give you credit for that. But yeah, you want to end on a high note? I'm here. This is what it should be. The offseason, a strong mini camp of only the week ended on a Thursday and everyone just went home by bus instead of by plane. We would be having a much better podcast and more positive conversation. <laughs> so, yeah, you know what? If they get Hopkins, top half, pop the champagne. Yeah, I'm with you. And like the Hopkins thing, too. It's like this shouldn't really be happening for you. Like he shouldn't. This shouldn't be one right. of his final two teams, right? Like you lucked into this because of the financial situations with other teams across the league. And you actually have this golden opportunity to get this legit number one receiver when you shouldn't. Like the Patriots are were not going to be on DeAndre Hopkins list if every team in the NFL had the opportunity to sign him. And this reminds me of an old Bill Walsh quote that I've not been able to find for literally years. It was in one of the biographies of him that I read. Maybe it was The Winning Edge, which is his book. But it speaks to the effect that every once in a while, maybe even every couple of years, the league is just going to gift you an opportunity that you should never come across. And that first came to mind when Mac Jones slid to 15. He has his rookie year and I'm digging through all the books and I can't find it. But whatever the quote is, the exact words, this is exactly one of those opportunities. The market has turned its back on DeAndre Hopkins. Some teams are out of money in cap space. Your only competition is Ryan Tannehill and what is going to be the remains of Derrick Henry when they give the ball to him 672 times and he can't play football anymore because that's their only course of offense awesome this season. Outbid the Titans. Get this guy in your building. Yep. Make sure he's bought in. This is how we practice. This is how we play. You're going to win. You're going to get your targets. We're going to go to the playoffs. Just prove it. Because that's the theme for the rest of the team this offseason from Bill on down. Prove it offensively. You are the team, the coach, the player that you say you are, that you believe you are after a 25 and 26 stretch here. DeAndre Hopkins, prove your worth. $19 million. If you leave next offseason, so be it. But come in the building. Be a part of this. Let's win right now. Yeah, I can't wait to see how this all finishes out. And I hope they get him. I'm feeling confident that they're going to get him, Callahan. But maybe I'll be burnt because I've been getting really excited the past couple of days of the (laughs) the possibility of getting DeAndre Hopkins, which at first I never thought it was a possibility. And here we are. All right. That is Andrew Callahan from the Herald, the Pats Interference Pod as well. Callahan, thank you so much for the time and really appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Anytime, my guy. Safe. And I underscore this twice. Safe travels, please. This summer. <laughs> All right, Callahan, great stuff, man. See ya. Hit a homer with $5 Dinger Tuesdays on FanDuel Sportsbook. Each Tuesday, all customers will get $5 in bonus bets for every home run hit by both teams when you place a $25 to hit a home run wager on MLB games. And the best part about Dinger Tuesdays is even if your bet loses, FanDuel will pay you $5 for every home run. How can you beat that? And I'm looking at this game coming up on Tuesday for the Sox and the Twins, and I like Raffy to go deep in this one. Raffy's starting to really swing the bat well, and you get a right-handed pitcher on the mound for Minnesota, so I like Raffy to go deep on Dinger Tuesdays. There's no better place to bet on America's pastime than America's number one sportsbook. Head over to your FanDuel account or download the FanDuel Sportsbook app by going to fanduel.com pike to pick your home run hitter. That's fanduel.com pike. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Max bonus $25. Restrictions apply. 
See full terms at FanDuel.com sportsbook. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff as always from my buddy Andrew Callahan. Make sure to be following Callahan on this story. He's been all over this one, really plugged in. Be following him for everything, but especially this story. He's been really glued into this one. I did forget to mention with Callahan, by the way, the John Morant tweet. <laughs> so I'm sure most of you saw this, but Jack Jones previously had tweeted about John Morant. Dumb, dumb. You letting social media and your pride ruin your real money. Put them guns down and run that money up. Make one of your homies sign up for security or a concealed carry if you feel like you need it that bad. But you the breadwinner, you gotta start acting like it. This is really incredible. He actually tweeted this at Ja Morant. And then this same guy has loaded guns in his carry-on at Logan literally like 30 days later. Unbelievable. But... I do want to get into some Celtics. I'll get into some Red Sox as well. But I thought it was worth mentioning that tweet because I cannot believe he actually tweeted that considering what now he was arrested for over the weekend, of course. But I do want to get to some C stuff, get to some Sox stuff as well. So let's do this. We'll get to a call and then we'll get to a couple of emails. So that phone number is 617-396-7172. Who's up first here? Joe from West Virginia. Hey, uh, Brian, metric man, Barrett, I got to tell you. A year ago, you had mentioned that Brian Bale's uh, repertoire of pitches was absolutely nasty, and I'm kind of paraphrasing how you put it. But after watching a pitch of his last two games against the New York Yankees, I got to say, you give that guy the ball, and it's just like he's as nasty as you want to be with that baseball, and he, he can just pitch it as sweet as honey also. I mean, I just asked the Bronx Bombers, they were pretty much guessing these last two games that he pitched against them. And he just looks like that kind of talent that is only going to go better than what he is right now. And I know you like to measure things in metrics and analytics, and I love it, but there are certain things that we kind of classify as intangible. And a couple of times when he came off the mound today against the Yankees on Father's Day, he was just absolutely – um, fired up, and he got the guys on the team fired up around him. Hey, uh, two quick questions for you. One, and I don't know how to pronounce his first name, but would is Yoshida and also Rafael Devers, would you say they could possibly make the all-star team this year? And then secondly, as far as I look at the Red Sox, and I hope that they just keep going well from here, but I just feel this, there isn't that core group of players that, that could really push you through a season. You know, they have, like, experience is one of your best teachers in life. And I just feel like Alex Cora is overloaded. I don't know what kind of guy he has in the club also, you know, help out these other younger players meld into the team. And anyways, always great to listen to your podcast. And, and, and you have a happy Father's Day should apply. And to whoever it does apply out there, and happy Father's Day. Thank you. Take care, Brian. Bye. Thank you, Joe. And yeah, good, good point. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. My father and everybody's father that listens to the podcast and you yourself, if you are a father, congratulations. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Good little Sunday. You got the major in golf, although not the guy that most people wanted to win, including myself, because I had Cam Smith, as I mentioned earlier, with Callahan plus 3000. The guy did finish in the top five. I should have taken that for top five rather than just picked him to win the tournament, but nonetheless, it's a plus 3,000 long, or plus 300,000, 3, so long odds. It wasn't like I had a really good opportunity to win that, but nonetheless, I digress. Getting into Joe's point about the Red Sox, the all-star stuff, Yoshida's basically going to be a shoe in 
as for Rafi, he could make it. I mean, the like batting average numbers, I'll get into that in a second here. All that stuff's not great, but he is driving and runs at a crazy rate. And he has a reputation now as one of the best players in the sport. You want your stars there. So yeah, Rafi has a really good opportunity as well. And in terms of just getting core guys here, that's what you kind of liked about the 2018 team, right? Where you had the Mookies of the world, the Andrew Benintendis of the world. Now, Benintendi, we're finding out you were right to move on from Andrew Benintendi. But my point with that is just like the core group of guys, the Xander Bogarts of the world. And now you're trying to get to this next group, which obviously starts with Rafi and the Tristan Casas of the world to see that group sort of grow together. And eventually Marcelo Mayer, when he's with this team, not going to be this year, but down the road as well. So it is a good point in terms of having just like the core guys. Now, as it pertains to Brian Bayo, you talked about the just not the analytics, but just some of the other stuff, the eye test, what he does. And I would say you certainly saw that in that game on Sunday night. And when you saw it in particular, first of all, this stuff was just nasty all night long. And I'll get into that in a second here. But the biggest moment of the game was in the seventh inning. First and second, no outs. That's when a young pitcher usually is in a lot of trouble, right? Where he's pitched so well all night, but first and second, no outs. You've been going through the lineup a couple of times. And what does he do? He bears down. He gets Calhoun on a four-seamer that was up in the strike zone, just heat at the top of the zone. Then he gets Volpe to ground out. We know he gets ground balls left and right. I've talked about that a bunch in this podcast. And then he gets Bowers on a Filthy, filthy changeup. So that, and he was electric coming off the mound. And I'm with you, Joe. He gets everybody fired up. I feel like he got Fenway Park fired up as well. It was just, it was a great moment for a guy where it feels like, holy shit, he may be that guy. He may be that great starting pitcher, rather, in the Red Sox organization that we've been waiting for. And just a young guy doesn't ordinarily get out of the jam. His stuff is elite, and that's pitching. That is pitching in the seventh inning. That's, yeah, it's pitching, but it's also, yeah, I'm better than you, and I'm going to sit you down, and that's exactly what he did in the seventh inning. And I get it that this is not a great Yankees team right now, but Bayo, it seems like he gets better each and every start, right? If you look at it tonight, the stuff was filthy. 41 swings, 16 whiffs. That's a 39% whiff rate. Just to put that into context, one starter in Major League Baseball is north of 39% this season. That guy is Spencer Strider, okay? Like one of the nastiest pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. Strider strikes out guys like crazy. Bayo on the season is at just 25.5%. That's in the 46th percentile. But when you see the stuff, you can tell he should get more swing and miss stuff. And this isn't an indictment on him. He's been really good this season for this team. But that 39% is an elite number. I'm not saying he's going to live in that neighborhood, But can he get into the 30s and live there? Certainly he should be able to do that, right? He should be above average when it comes to that. And we saw in this game against the Yankees, it was on display. And then you look at it, eight strikeouts, including the two big punch outs in the seventh inning. That tonight was a 28.6% strikeout rate. You look at it on the season, only 12 of 105 starters are north of 28% of the season, minimum of 50 innings. So that's an elite number two to get over that 28% threshold. Bayo on the season is at 21.4%, which is 67th out of that 105 starters. So Bayo should be able to get above the league average, which is 25% without question. And I would expect that for the majority of his career, even though he gets a lot of soft contact, so sometimes that is a situation where you're not going to get a ton of strikeouts because Guys are swinging at bad pitches and they're hitting it on the ground. But nonetheless, I believe he's going to live above 25% for the majority of his career. And basically right now, 
you can pencil him in for six innings and two earned runs or less. It's really unbelievable. And tonight, he was hurt by the defense in the first inning with Duran, right, where he kind of got caught in between, and instead of just staying there, letting the ball come to him, he didn't know if he was going to go for it or not, so you get in between, and then you lose the ball, and that's how they end up scoring their first run, because at that particular point in time, instead of it just being first and second, it's second and third, you get the ground ball to bring in the run, but then give Duran credit, he made that great play later on in the game to take away a run. So one of the things I really like is Cora letting him go through the order the third time. He continues to do this now. And on the season, entering this game tonight, he had a 292 opponents on base percentage the third time through the order. That's his best, like better than the first time through, better than the second time through. So he's actually getting better as these starts continue to go on, which is something you don't ordinarily see for a young pitcher. Like how many times have we talked about Tanner Houck or Garrett Whitlock, right? Houck really struggles the third time through. The second time through for Garrett Whitlock was an issue last year. And what we're seeing from Brian Bale, the development's there, and he's actually getting better as the start goes on. That's pitching, and that's what you saw from Bale tonight, the ability to manipulate and maneuver the lineup. And like I said, I know I'm prefacing all this with saying the Yankees are bad right now and they don't have Aaron Judge. And if you look at it, last eight starts prior to tonight, a 308 ERA, that's obviously going to go down after this outing that we saw on Sunday Night Baseball, but that's 18th among starters during that stretch. It's a really good number. He's legitimately been a top end of the rotation guy. He's been the Red Sox best pitcher this season because of the injury to Chris Sale, of course. And this is just a major development going forward for this team. Because if you look at Bale, he's only 24, right? So he's not even arbitration eligible until 2027, which is his 28-year-old season. So if you can get a cheap top end of the rotation guy, it's like a cheat code, right? Because Starting pitching is so valuable in Major League Baseball, and you th- see these crazy numbers that guys are getting across the game in terms of what they're getting paid, the Scherzers, the Verlanders, the DeGroms of the world. You're getting away with a really cheap contract, so to speak, for a young pitcher, and this is another example of a guy that if I'm Heim Bloom, I gave him credit for signing Garrett Whitlock early, I would go to Bayo quickly because this is the time that he would be willing to sign something because what you're going to be giving him is life-changing money. The closer and closer we get to his 28-year-old season, that's when he's not going to want to sign that contract. So if I'm high and bloom of the organization, this is one thing I try to do right now. Go to him and try to get a contract extension done. But this has been basically my favorite part of the season because Sale was the favorite part of the season for me. But then, of course, he ends up with the injury and he's not pitching anymore. So it kind of sucks. But right now, my favorite thing with this season is watching Bayo. He's got a presence on the mound to Joe's point. It's just... It's absolutely incredible to watch the development right now. It's something that we have not seen in this Red Sox organization for so long. Just having a really good young starting pitcher. So that's obviously massive for this team. All right, by the way, speaking of Brian Bale, we bring in Jamie McClellan, our producer, who was actually at the game on Sunday Night Baseball. I was in the building on Friday. He was there tonight. So let's get to some of your emails at offthepike at gmail.com. But before that, Jamie, what a game you saw tonight, man. You saw you witnessed the sweep of the Yankees and Brian Bale. Right. Let's go. Yeah, it was a great night. It was a beautiful night, too. I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, Bale was electric. And like you said, he kind of got better. His seventh inning was probably, at the way he finished it at least, really shut them down. And um, there were a lot of Yankees fans, so I enjoyed watching them get shut down tonight. Was that the yeah. same for you on Friday? Yeah, I noticed that on Friday. There was a ton of Yankees fans in the building. Obviously, they were very loud early. They took the lead early. They took the lead in all three of these games. So they were very loud early, and then... They were very quiet the rest of the night. The game I, like I went to, that was the 15-5 to 5 game, so it wasn't very eventful in terms of... Now, there was eventful for... Re- like, Justin Turner, I'll get into that, and 
obviously there's a big situation with Tanner Houck getting hit with the ball, but just in terms of there wasn't a lot of anxiousness from a Red Sox perspective, right? From the fans, it was like a party Friday night because you were winning the whole game and you were hitting home runs left and right. So you weren't worried from a Red Sox fans perspective, but to your original question, yes, a lot of Yankees fans. Mm -hmm. So the atmosphere was good though tonight. It was great. I mean, it was a blast. I mean, I was there with my dad and my brother. I think there were a lot of you know, fathers and sons there. So that was a lot of fun and some fun plays. Like I was thinking on top of Bayo just crushing it. The defense was great tonight for like the first time all year. They made like five great plays. And what do you know? It helps out your pitcher's ERA, you know? Yeah. Reyes had a sick one. Obviously, we referenced the Duran one earlier, but yeah, there was was the Yankees defense is atrocious. I mean, we've been killing the Red Sox all season and deservingly so. The Yankees are bad defensively, man. They look terrible all around, man. They're terrible at the plate. Stan looked like he had his eyes closed on some of those at-bats, man. Just waving his bat around. Yeah, he has some really, really bad misses, man. So, hey, yeah. I'm glad you had fun at the game. That's awesome, dude. It, lo- it looked fun. I, I was, like, yeah. watching the game. I'm like, I kind of wish I was there again tonight. Friday night at Fenway. I love Friday night at Fenway. I'll tell you what my favorite day to go to the game is, though. The Saturday afternoon one. The oh, yeah. 410. Okay, because that's, like, a good time where it's not too late when the game's over. 410, middle of the afternoon. Atmosphere is always good. And if it's a good day out, of course, you're in good weather the entire time. Mm-hmm. And it does, you know, not nighttime. So that's, I love Friday night at Fenway, but Saturday, the 410 starts, which they started doing a couple of years ago. Those are my favorite games to go to at Fenway. I'm going to mark my calendar. I'll be there next time. There you go. The 8th, I believe they play. Of July? Yeah. 8th of July. I believe it's the Oakland A's. The worst oh, man. Marquee baseball. matchup. Yeah. And then the 22nd, <laughs> the Mets, the Mets. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's good. A, that's yeah, a that's a good one. one as well, although they've been struggling. But nonetheless, I mean, come on. Saturday, 410. Can't beat it. All right, Jamie, let's get to a couple of these emails. What do you got? All right, switching gears a bit. We got a couple uh, Celtics offseason moves. This is from Chip in Connecticut. He writes, what do you think of some of the next level free agent guards? Lower cost alternatives, some of the bigger name, big dollar players that have been in the news lately. I think he wrote this obviously before. The Beal, uh, Chris Paul trade today. But anyways, he mentions a couple of players. He mentions Patrick Beverly on the Bulls, says he has good defense. And obviously, he's got that kind of gamer mentality. Uh, Javon Walker, solid playmaker, solid defense and a good ball handler. And then Corey Joseph on the Pistons, solid D and playmaker. What do you make of those three players, Brian? Yeah, I don't think that's a need at all. The Celtics have enough guards, and I'll get into this right. in a little bit here. Like, they have a logjam. I understand the point, like, to get cheap guys on the guard line. But from my perspective, you need to get one of these guards out. And I'll get into this in a little bit here. But for me, it's more about adding wings and some depth at the center position. To me, I don't feel like this team, if anything, they have too many guards, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have enough minutes for those guys. So I don't think that's a need whatsoever. Now, if you make a couple of big trades and hypothetically, like, two of your guards are gone, okay, yeah, now you're going to have to add some cheap labor on the guard line, but we're not at that point right now. So I would say I'm I'm more into get a wing and get some backup in terms of the center position because Rob is always going to be hurt. He's always going to be dealing with something as it pertains to injuries. And Al's old, man. Like, give Al credit for the past two seasons, but he's old. You need some more depth at that position. All right, what do we got next, Jamie? Well, this this is from Daniel. He This kind of goes to what you were just saying. He, he was talking about a different kind of trade, maybe shipping one of the guards out. He's writing, what about Malcolm Brogdon for Bogdan Bogdanovich? Uh, you know, wing uh, salaries are similar and fits a need for the team. The Hawks need a third guard and have too many wings. And it feels like Bogdanovich is the ideal third wing behind Brown and Tatum. Experienced, can handle the ball when needed, and a good clutch player. What do you make of that? 
I don't hate it. I mean, obviously, there's a track record there, like with the injury stuff with Bogdanovich. I wouldn't mind that if you bring in a guy like him because we know that he can score. I, I don't really know if they really need that position, though. They already have Bogdan. two. Yeah, they, they don't really need a guy that's going to come in and run the second unit because what they do is, as we saw in the postseason, they stagger those Murray Trey Young minutes. So unless there's a trade, like a bigger trade for the team, I just don't think Atlanta needs to make a move like that. I wouldn't be against it. Like, as you know, I've been looking at this and I believe Brogdon is a Georgia native as well. So I think he's from Georgia. So that could possibly appeal to him. I just don't see like they don't need another high usage guard. Atlanta, right? <laughs> Trey they, and have, Brogdon, yeah. they have Trey yeah. and they have Murray. Like from an Atlanta perspective, <laughs> yeah. that's like the last thing they need. And Brogdon is when he's on the court, he's a high usage guy, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, he got more catch and shoot opportunities this year, but he has the ball in his hands a lot. That's why they liked him coming off the bench because he wasn't playing all the time with Tatum and Jalen Brown, where Derek White fits seamlessly with both those guys because he's really good playing off the ball. Malcolm Brogdon can do it sort of as a spacer, but he needs to have the ball in his hands. So I, I just don't see Atlanta doing that in terms of the Malcolm Brogdon situation. Yeah. Right, right. All right, Jamie. Good stuff, man. Um, so you had a good weekend. You got to go to the Sox. You got to see Brian Bale. So a, a nice little night for you, Jamie. I had a good night. It was perfect. I was thinking, you know, seven innings from your starter, setup man, closer against the Yankees. What more do you want? I know. And the game. You notice that being in the building, like how many games have you been to this year? Like the game just moves so much faster. It's unbelievable. I mean, if you had asked me a couple of years ago, do you want to go to Red Sox Yankees Sunday night baseball? I think I might say no. When they had those eight o'clock starts and it was a yeah, get home by game. midnight. I know. I'm like, yeah, maybe not actually. And now it was a breeze. It was fun. All right. Great stuff, Jamie. Glad you had a good time, my friend. Thanks, Brian. By the way, if you want to get an email in, it's off the pike at gmail.com. And that phone number, if you want to leave a voicemail like Joe in West Virginia did, that is 617-396-7172. All right, so speaking of Brogdon, I do want to get into this here because we got news today. Bradley Beal is heading to the Suns. It is, at least temporarily, it's good that he is not going to the Heat and you don't have him in your conference, right? Adding him with Butler and Bam, I told you that sort of scared me, but... The thing I'm concerned about now, Damian Lillard, because now we have a lot of reporting. Chris Haynes is reporting that Miami is focusing on Lillard. I fucking hope not. That would be incredibly scary if you have a team where it's Bam, it's Jimmy Butler, and Damian Lillard. Now, I don't know exactly what the trade would look like. Obviously, Miami would want to keep Bam. If they get Damian Lillard, that would scare me because the Celtics already lost to this team. You add a guy like Lillard to the equation there, it would be massive. And we heard Lillard recently saying that Bam's his guy and he would like to play for him. So that does sort of scare me. But let me get to this trade for a second from the Phoenix side. You have to win next season. Beal, by the way, 40 games and 50 games the past two seasons. Okay, so this guy's hurt a lot. And this is before he turned 30. So he's a massive health risk right now. And we know Durant missed all of 1920. Then 35 games, 55 games, and 57 games. He's always hurt. I just don't think it's going to work. There will be massive highs with this team and all that, right? Like, they're going to have some nights where you're like, how does anybody, how would anybody beat them in a seven-game series, right? But they already were hurt by an injury last year to Chris Paul. Chris Paul, like, getting hurt completely derailed them in that Nuggets series. And look, the Nuggets probably won the series anyway. I'm not saying that Chris Paul injury was the reason because Paul was not playing particularly great either. I'm just saying they had no depth. Now it's going to be even more difficult for them to put together depth on this team because they're going to have no money. They're going to hit that second apron and we'll get, we can get into the CBA at a later date. But the point being, going forward, they're not going to be adding many pieces to this team. We're talking about adding 
league minimum guys to a team that features two guys in Bradley Beal and Kevin Durant that are always dealing with injuries. And so (laughs) you start to think about this. It's just kind of wild because you had this situation where his agent, Beal's agent, said this. This was an extremely complicated process with so many different hurdles to get through. And Ted Leonsis and Michael Winger were unbelievable partners in making this happen. This is unbelievable. So two things about this. This is Bradley Beal's agent talking about the trade. First of all, the Wizards are a fucking joke, okay? Not Michael Winger. He inherited this mess, right? I'm not saying him. He inherited this. But basically, Beal is just making his own trade. And the reason is, it's because he has a no-trade clause. I don't know how you give this guy a no-trade clause. He already was on the Supermax. He said, let's throw in a no-trade as well so he could basically pick his destination, because if they tried to some, send him somewhere else, they'd just say, no. Beal would say, no, I'm not going there. It's unreal. I do kind of wonder, like, maybe Tatum could have pushed a little harder for this thing. Convince Bradley Beal to come to the Celtics because it feels like Bradley Beal's just going to pick his destination. So I wonder where Tatum was in this whole situation here. Maybe Tatum should have pushed harder with the Celtics front office or maybe reached out to Bradley Beal a little bit more because maybe he could have convinced his best buddy to come here. I mean, that would have been, I would have taken that, especially considering Washington gave up essentially nothing. Second round draft picks, some swaps, Chris Paul's contract that they're apparently working on him with the trade, possibly to the Clippers, according to Chris Haynes and a couple of other people have had that report as well, that they're looking to move Chris Paul to a contender. But you gave up basically nothing to get rid of Bradley Beal if you were the Celtics. And look, like I was saying the other day, it would be very difficult to build this team around Tatum, Beal, and Brown going forward. But considering what the cost was to get him, I mean, it's absolutely nothing. It's unreal. So I just feel like the scariest thing to me about this is the Lillard situation with Beal gone because Beal to the Heat already scared me a little bit and Beal is not even in the same zip code as Damian Lillard as a player. If the Heat can actually pull off the Lillard thing, that's the ripple effect that scares me in this whole situation. But I did want to get to Brogdon here because our buddy B-Rob, Brian Rob from Mass Live, mentioned that the team is investigating moving a guard to improve other areas of the roster per league sources. This is sort of what I was getting to when we brought up the Bogdanovich thing. So we shouldn't be surprised that right after that, we get the Jake Fisher report that the Suns are interested. Obviously, that's off the table now because they land a guy by the name of Bradley Beal that we were mentioning. So that's out of the picture. And I don't really think there was a trade for the Celtics and the Suns just looking at their roster. But I continue to believe that Brogdon is the one that's going to be moved out before Derek White's definitely not getting traded, but I believe Brogdon's the most likely to go out of the Brogdon smart white trio. So B-Rob mentioned maybe something with the Clippers makes sense in his article up at Mass Live. And part of it is, look, they've been looking for a point guard. Now, Malcolm Brogdon is not the best passer in the world, right? And maybe the Clippers end up now at this particular point in time, maybe they do end up with Chris Paul. We'll see how this situation plays out. We may get news on Chris Paul by Monday or Tuesday, whenever it is. But nonetheless, if the Clippers were interested in Brogdon, the guy, and look, because they have the Russell Westbrook option if they want to bring him back. But, and I know that he had that nice run in the postseason, but Brogdon is sort of a steadier player, so to speak. And Kawhi and Paul George, I don't think it's a great fit there for the Clippers because those guys need a pass first guy like, for example, Chris Paul. But if they like Brogdon, I feel like there's a player on this roster that makes sense for the Celtics in a trade, and that would be Eric Gordon. Now, Gordon is going to be entering his 34-year-old season, but he's a guy I've always liked. So if the Clippers really do like Brogdon and 
they have wing depth already. They may be willing to move on from Eric Gordon, and that's a guy that I would be interested in. And the money works in terms of just basically Brogdon for Gordon. And if you look at it, once he went over to the Clippers this season, started to shoot the ball well again, 43% on above the break threes, 95th, uh, 94th percentile according to cleaning the glass. Two years ago, 41%. That was in the 91st percentile according to cleaning the glass. And he can hit deep threes. You've seen him. He pulls from deep. He can also drive a closeout and get to the basket. Two years ago, in the 70th percentile as an ISO score, he can get, he sort of just like rams through guys very strong. And he's a good defender. He's a sturdy defender. And he helps you on that wing line. If you remember back to when the Warriors had their most difficult series, like during their run against the Rockets, he was part of that switching scheme where at the time you had the Trevor Reeses of the world, right? He was really good at switching and he can guard up even though he has shooting guard size, but he's basically a wing he can guard up. So I feel like with Eric Gordon, this is a guy that would get more opportunities from a catch and shoot perspective with this Celtics team. He's a guy that can come off the bench and replace the Malcolm Brogdon scoring aspect to this. He can get his own bucket. He can create his own shot. And he's a good defender on the wing line, which is something that you would like to add considering right now, you're basically your wings are Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Like as great as those guys are, the Celtics were short on the wing line. So if you could swap a Brogdon for Eric Gordon, I would do that in a second. All right. So next thing on the Celtics, We've done a lot of Jalen stuff already this offseason, fake trades, whether or not to give him the Supermax and all that. I did find this interesting. So I was listening to the mismatch with KOC. So he had an interesting thought. And one of the things that KOC floated out there was if Houston gets a commitment from Harden or Kyrie Irving, would they be willing to move off that fourth pick, right? Because just look at this for a second. So Essentially, they would get a promise from whether it be Harden, and I know the Harden back to Philly's been picking up a lot of steam now, but if Harden or Kyrie's camp, and I don't even know if the Rockets would be interesting in Kyrie, but let's just, for the sake of this argument here, the hypothetical. So those guys would go to Houston, especially Harden, say, okay, now use that fourth overall pick and try to get me another player. And if you're Houston, and we mentioned that fourth pick, we all know that in the draft, the top three guys are going to be gone, right? Like the top three players in the draft, Wembenyana, we already know he's going to the Spurs. There's the debate, Scoot Henderson and Brandon Miller for the second spot. And those guys go in the top three. And then there's sort of a drop-off in terms of the talent. So if you're Houston, you've been a dumpster fire of an organization and you hired Ime Adoka, the guy that was two wins away from the NBA championship two years ago. They have enough young guys, right? When you're talking about Jalen Green, Sengun, Jabari Smith, Tari Eason, and I really like Sengun, but you look at Jabari Smith, I think he's going to be a really good player. He's limited as a ball handler, but the guy has a really pretty looking jumper. I know the numbers were bad last year, but I believe he's going to be really good. He's going to be a good catch and shoot guy down the road here, and I like the minutes that the Rockets played him at the five against the Celtics. I think he should play more five, so I thought that was a useful lineup, and I think he's going to be a good player. I don't think he's a franchise player, and I'll get to that in a second here. And I'm not a Jalen Green fan. I just hate his brand of basketball. I hate the guys who just chuck it. That's what he does. He's a chucker, right? I mean, you think about it. He's like a Ricky Davis type. 41.6% from the floor this past season. That was 113th out of 123 qualifiers, okay? So the reason I point this out is when I look at this Houston roster, they don't have the guy. Like when the Spurs make their pick, okay, they're going to have the guy. The Magic right now with Paolo Bancaro, they feel like they have the guy. I don't see anybody on this Rockets team where you say, 
They have the guy. They have some nice young players, right? But then you start to think about, well, at four, can you find the guy? Whether it's Thompson or Anthony Black, Cam Whitmore, Walker from Houston, none of those guys look to be franchise caliber players like at least Wembenyana and Scutu, maybe Brandon Miller to a lesser extent. You can't really find that guy at four. Now, obviously, Ime has experience with both Kyrie and Harden. He was there in Brooklyn. So who knows? Maybe he doesn't want either one of those guys, or maybe he wants both of them. Maybe he wants one of them. But assuming that the Rockets are going to try to turn this around here, and you're tr- you're going after a guy like Harden or Kyrie Irving, obviously they're not going both there together <laughs> for obvious reasons, right? But you would think after the job that Jalen did on Harden defending him, where he shut him down in a couple of those playoff games, you would think that Harden would want to play with a guy like Jalen. And we know if it's Kyrie and not Harden, Kyrie would want to play with Jalen again because what we found out is now these guys, they talked about the fact, Jalen in particular, that they're good friends now. They did not have a good relationship when Kyrie was with the Celtics, but then they had a conversation and those guys are on good terms now. So I think Jalen would see this as an appealing situation, right? Whether it's Harden or whether it's Kyrie Irving, right? And we know he loves Ime. So remember from... Logan Murdoch's article in The Ringer, he said, I hope Ime is doing well. I haven't talked to him, but I hope he gets another chance. Coaching again. There were some conflictions on the information that was kind of getting around and stuff like that. That put some dirt in his name. It's a lot. It's very nuanced. So whether you stood on his side, they was going to find what was wrong from a coach that I advocated to bring here to Boston. I wanted to see him back on his feet here, and no matter what it was, I don't think that's the wrong way to feel. So that tells me right there that Jalen loves Ime, would definitely like to play for Ime again. And with this Ime thing, any team that would trade for Jalen Brown, in this hypothetical world here, okay, any team that would be looking to trade for Jalen Brown has to know that Jalen's going to re-sign with that organization. And if Ime is there and Jalen's getting traded to Houston, he's going to know whether or not Jalen's going to resign there. So Ime and the Rockets would be a team that would be willing to do that, considering the fact that he knows Jalen, Jalen knows Ime, Jalen likes Ime, right? So this comes back to this whole situation with the Celtics to me. The reason I bring this up is Jalen has all the leverage this offseason. It's just another example of why they're just going to have to give him the Supermax, Jalen, unless they find a really good trade partner out there. Because... If Jalen does not get the Supermax, we all know that he's going to want to be traded. So that's why the Celtics, they don't have a choice here. They have to offer him that deal. So let's just say the Celtics say, hey, we don't want to give you the Supermax, Jalen. Jalen says, okay, that's fine. I want out. And he basically can pick his destination of any team in the NBA because unless a team's willing to do the Kawhi thing, right? If a team said, hey, you know what? We'll rent a player for a year, see if he'll come back. But the, the difference between... Kawhi and Jalen, you get Kawhi at the time, that's a top three player in the league. Jalen's not a top three player in the league. Jalen's outside the top 15 in the NBA. I get he made all NBA, but it's just, this is why I keep coming back to the fact that the Celtics are not in an ideal spot when it comes to Jalen. I would not be wanting to give him a Supermax. I've made that abundantly clear. But at this point, he's not a Supermax player. I get he earned the contract, right? I mean, that's the unfortunate thing here. But if you think about it, the guys that weren't on the all NBA team this past season, and I know that Julius Randle made it at the forward position as well. But he isn't one of the best six forwards in the NBA, right? Kevin Durant's better than him. Paul George is better than him. Kawhi Leonard's better than him. And I look and you can say, well, those guys get hurt. I get that. But my point is, those guys healthy, you take over Jalen Brown. They're better players. So basically, you're paying a guy that is in top six at his position, the Supermax. And we've seen when you give 
Guys, the Supermax that aren't supposed to be getting the Supermax, it hurts your organization going forward. Now, the difference here is like the Bradley Beal situation, he was taxed to be the number one guy. He wasn't a number one guy. Jalen is still going to be the number two guy when Jason Tatum's here, of course. So that's the difference between the Beal situation and the Jalen situation. But still, when you're overpaying your second guy and you're giving him the Supermax, it can hurt you in terms of building this team going forward in terms of the financial flexibility. But this is where the Celtics are at. They're going to have to give him the Supermax contract and it's going to be more difficult to build this team going forward. That's why winning next year when you still have all these guys under contract is such a necessity. And by the way, just in this hypothetical situation of Jalen getting recruited by Ime and Harden or Ime and Kyrie, this would only be if Jalen is offered, is Jalen is not offered the Supermax, right? Which is going to be, there's only like a couple of ways this could happen. The Celtics don't want to give Jalen the Supermax. He doesn't want to negotiate at all to take a little bit less. Or Jalen says he passes on the Supermax, which we haven't seen anybody do. And he says, I want to trade. Like that's not going to happen. So the most likely scenario is Jalen has the Supermax. I just thought this was interesting in terms of, just sort of when KOC mentioned that, like, oh, if they get somebody, could they trade for Jalen Brown? It just sort of reminded me of the bad position the Celtics are in right now in terms of negotiating with Jalen. They can't negotiate with Jalen. So you would basically, and the thing I come back to with that Rockets thing, you would have to get a third team involved if the Celtics are going to make that trade because you really don't have anyone from the Rockets side that is appealing in terms of a star player, right? Like, I like a lot of those young guys, as I said. I like Jabari Smith. I like Sengun. But I'm not doing a deal surrounded by those two guys, right? You would need, and I get you could have draft picks and all that different type of stuff. But if Jalen's going there and another superstar in this hypothetical is there, those draft picks aren't going to be good at it anyway. So I just, I don't see the avenue, even if that happened. And like I said, the hypothetical, this is a hypothetical. I don't see this happening. Jalen's going to get the Supermax with the Celtics. He's going to be here going forward. But my point is just the fact that if you did have a situation with the Rockets, I just don't see how you get a deal done without getting a third team involved because I want to win now with Tatum, right? So I need somebody on that timeline. The one exception I would have, and I mentioned this briefly before, is Scoot Henderson because I think he's going to be an all-NBA guard and Tatum is still young enough to grow with that player. I just think he's special. I don't think anybody on the Rockets is like this special, projects to be like in the MVP conversation down the road. I could see that happening with Scoot Henderson. Okay, so it's just interesting to see where this team's at as it pertains to the Jalen Brown situation. And when KOC said that with the Rockets, I'm like, man, that would not be good if one of those guys goes there and then the Celtics, and the Celtics aren't going to fuck it up in terms of the negotiating process. It's not going to happen, but it would be an interesting thought if that scenario played itself out, especially like if Jalen hadn't qualified for the Supermax, that feels like it could be a real scenario for me. One of those guys goes to Houston. The Celtics can't give Jalen the Supermax. It makes no sense for him to extend. That would make sense to me from Jalen's perspective and all this, because then the Celtics are hoping that they can re-sign him next offseason. So it is, I guess it is, in a way, beneficial to the Celtics that they do have that card that they can play where it's like, you're going to pass up on all this money, right? But I did also want to touch on this. It appears a market is developing for Grant Williams. Michael Scotto of Hoopsite reported that the Mavericks are the latest team to have interest in Grant. Jake Fisher reported the Pacers are in. And I just look at it. I believe Grant's gone. And I believe this is going to be look bad long term for the Celtics. And the reason is this. I'm not saying it's like oh, the Celtics are going to be cheap and they're not going to pay him what he wants. What the matching. I'm not saying any of that. It just feels like to me when I look at this. They aren't properly. Over the past year, I would say they didn't properly take advantage of Grant, the player. And there were some weird situations there with the DNPs. So when I look at Grant Williams, he's a limited player. He can't really handle the basketball. 
once in a while, he can drive a closeout, but he's not going to beat you off the dribble. And he can hit, catch, and shoot threes. He can play good defense, but he's never going to be a creator or anything along those lines. So he's not a perfect player. I'm not saying that, but I do believe he's a really good role player. And if you look at, say, Indiana, they have Tyrese Halliburton, who averaged 10.4 assists per game this season. That would have been second in the NBA if he played enough games. Luka, for Dallas, was at eight assists per game. That was six. Okay, so both those guys are way better playmakers than anybody on the Celtics. And this is not meant to be an indictment on Jason Tatum or anything. I'm just saying Halliburton average, if you look at it too, 2.3 assists per game on his drives. That was third in the NBA. Luka was at 2.1. That was fourth. So the reason I bring up Grant would be a really good fit for those teams is he's good on a team where there's a guy that's dominating the ball, right? And can kick to open shooters. Luka and Tyrese Halliburton are two of the best passers in the league, right? So if you look at the Mavericks, 48.7% of their shot attempts were threes. That was the highest rate in the NBA. The Celtics were second. The Pacers were seventh at 41.3. Because what those two guys do is they create three-point opportunities. And the Pacers number would have been higher if Halliburton had played in more games, right? And if you look at what Grant is as a player, as a catch-and-shoot guy over the past two seasons on catch-and-shoot threes, 188 of 468, that's 40.2%, elite number. Then you look at Grant Williams on corner threes over the past two seasons, 116 of 258, 45% elite, right? So when you're talking about two of the best passers in the league, Grant is just going to be able to sit in the corner and knock down open threes. I really like Grant as a player. I just think that he will be more amplified with one of these other organizations. Not to say that Dallas or Indiana are better run than the Celtics. I'm not saying that at all, but from their perspective, when they have Luka and Halliburton, they're going to make Grant better than the guys on the Celtics do, right? And you look at the numbers this year with Halliburton on the floor in Indiana, the Pacers had an effective field goal percentage of 57.6%. That was in the 92nd percentile via cleaning the glass. And that's not even a good Indiana team, right? That 5.5 percentage point increase with him on the floor, 99th percentile. So they were 5.5 percentage points higher. 99th percentile in terms of the increase of the effective field goal percentage. That just tells you that he's generating good shots for his teammates. With Luka, same type of thing. The Mavericks had an effective field goal percentage of 58.2% with him on the floor. That was in the 95th percentile. 3.7 percentage point jump, 94th percentile. So these two guys create really good shots for their teammates. Grant would be perfect to play on a team like this. And I thought Grant's defense slipped a little bit this past season. But I still think he's a quality player on that side of the court. I mean, we saw it at times in the postseason. I know the whole Jimmy Butler thing, but at least he took on the matchup. He's versatile. I mean, you'd rather be covering a four than a three, but he can handle threes. He's not going to get completely owned when he gets switched on to a guard. Now, like Trey Young, okay, yeah, like these super quick guards, yeah, he's going to give him problems. But Grant can hold up pretty well there. I just think if I'm Grant Williams, I would want a fresh start in Indiana or Dallas, especially after the way the coaching staff handled him this past season with the DNPs. He's not playing at the beginning of the Atlanta series. He's not playing at the beginning of the Heat series. If I'm Grant, I would like a new opportunity with a bigger role. And Grant Williams to those other teams, it's a really easy sell, right? Hey, Grant, um, your team doesn't really like you. We think we have a bigger role for you. And you're going to start every single game for us next season. So no more coming off the bench. You're starting every game. I just don't see how Grant's back. Like, I don't see how you match that offer, right? Don't you think that also, like, won't the player be upset? Like, if Grant wants to leave, he's probably already upset with the organization. And look, he's never said anything publicly or anything along those lines. He did all the right things in terms of just basically 
being a good teammate and all that different type of stuff, sitting on the bench when he wasn't playing. And when his opportunity was there in the playoffs, he was really good when he played, right? At time for, I mean, he had really good stretches during this postseason run. But I just feel like if if you don't, if you match the offer, and Grant knows he's going to be in a similar situation in terms of the playing time, he knows he's not going to be a starter, most likely with the Celtics. He'd probably be pissed. He's like, well, I want to go somewhere where I have a bigger opportunity. So I just feel like we've seen the reporting that the Celtics are looking for a sign and trade. If you can get something back for Grant, great. But I think that's just more about matching the money, so to speak. But I think Grant's gone. And I think the Celtics, they misplayed this one this past season with the way they handled Grant. I think that Grant should have been playing more minutes. That's one thing that I'll never understand about the Missoula situation. But if I'm Grant Williams, I would rather play for Dallas or Indiana going forward. All right, a lot more to get into, including I want to get back to the Sox. We got into it briefly with the call from Joe. But the Red Sox, of course, they sweep the Yankees over the weekend. Some really positive signs. We'll get to that next. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. That's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. All right, as we were talking about earlier, some big developments this week in the Sox sweep the Yankees. The only negative thing was the Tanner Houck injury. As I mentioned, I was there Friday night for that. It was scary. He ends up with a facial fracture, but man, you're just glad he's okay. I heard Jemai Webster on the Nesson broadcaster on the first game today say that Garrett Whitlock said he was finally able to sleep last night. He was having trouble with that, with the pain that he was in. So it's really a shame because he was throwing the ball well for the second straight start prior to that one. So he goes on the 15-day IL, and then you have the rainout on Saturday, and you're like, shit. They're going to get screwed here from a pitching situation because basically it's like having two guys go down, right? Because you would need two starters on the same day on Sunday, right? And then you would need to find a starter for both Wednesday and Thursday next week. And so what they do instead, the Red Sox, they have Caleb Ort used as the opener in the first game on Sunday because you went with the bullpen game. So you're only down one starter later on in the week, right? And I'll get to that in a second. But you winning that game with Ort on the mound was massive. And I get it. He's just out there as an opener. But I thought this is almost like a scheduled loss for the Red Sox when they had the bullpen game, right? And they go out there and they win that game. And then they, so they already took the series. And then they, of course, finish up the sweep on Sunday Night Baseball. And Ort, by the way, he got hit hard, as you would expect. So I hope we don't get another bullpen game with Ort this week. Because Ort, 
This guy stinks. I don't get it. Right away, he gives up a ground rule double to Bowers. Four-seamer, middle-middle. Bang, 109 miles an hour off the bat. Two batters later, Torres homers. Four-seamer, middle-middle, 105.9. This is what we've seen with Ort every time he pitches for the Red Sox. He gets clobbered. Here's the problem with Ort. The guy gives up a lot of loud contact. And in his career, the launch angle is 20.7 degrees. So if you look at qualified relievers this season, and he was used as an opener, that's why... I'm using him as a reliever because he is a reliever. Just open the game today. But if you look at qualified relievers, only 19 of the 184 qualifiers have a launch angle north of 20 degrees. And the reason that's so important is because it means everything's in the air, right? Like below 10 degrees, you're going to get a ground ball. You're at 20. Everything is in the air, right? So what you're looking at with that 20.7, when the ball gets in the air with him, he gets himself in trouble because the Bowers double, the Torres home run, 31 degrees on the Torres home run. With the Bowers double, that was 20 degrees in terms of the launch angle. So what happens is when you give up loud contact and you have a launch angle that is 20 degrees, it's a disaster because all those hard hit balls are going in the air and you're doing damage against him, right? So basically for him to be good, he would need to be a high strikeout guy because when guys are actually hitting the ball against him, they're hard hit, right? So basically to put this into context, his strikeout rate for his career, 20.6%, that is well below average. That would rank 150th out of 184 qualified relievers this season. The hard hit rate for his career, 45%. That's balls off the bat, 95 plus miles an hour. Only 33 of the 184 relievers are north of 45% this season. So that's high. So he doesn't strike guys out. He gives up loud contact. And the launch angle is incredibly high. That's why he's so bad. So like, you're in a tough spot today. I get it. But man, I just never want to see this guy pitch again. He's not a big league pitcher. And look. The Red Sox win the series. It's awesome. Like, I'm pumped they actually won the Ork game. It's insane. But I just can't watch this guy pitch anymore. Hey, the guy just gets clobbered. Everything. It's all rockets in the air. It's unreal. All right, let's get to the good news because the Sox win the series. And before I get into the particulars, my biggest takeaway from the weekend, I did enjoy the Yankees. They balked twice in one game, one of which was brought in for a run. I mean, that was phenomenal. The Yankees' defense is bad. They're not a smart baseball team at all right now. I mean, you have two box in a game and the Red Sox in the second game score on a catcher's interference. I mean, this is stuff that should not be happening to a major league team. Two box, a box for a run and a catcher interference for a run. It's unreal. But how about the Clark Schmidt stuff in the first game? This was unbelievable to me. He was not close to the rubber and Cora's trying to get the umpiring crew on it. And so was Carlos Fabulous. And the umpires won't look at it. And you can go on Twitter and see it. This guy is nowhere near the rubber. And I don't understand why the umpires don't look at that. All you got to do is look. It's pretty easy to see it. And they didn't want to do it. It just it kind of annoyed me that they didn't do that. But how about Justin Turner? So he actually shockingly didn't get a hit on the Sunday night game. But he had an eight-game hitting streak prior to that. 36 plate appearances during that streak. 15 for 33. Three doubles, three bombs, 11 RBIs, and eight runs. Just an insane eight-game stretch for Turner before the Sunday night game. And they're big hits, right? I mean, you think about it in the fifth inning of the first game, one out, Verdugo walks, and then Schmidt, who had been really good, despite the fact that he's pitching in front of the rubber, which is cheating, but nonetheless. So then Turner gets a bad sweeper, lifts it off the monster. So that sets the table to make it second and third with one out. Rafi has the ground out RBI, and then Duvall hammers one off the monster to make it 2-2. And Duvall needed that, right? Because prior to the game on Sunday, he was three for 22 since his return. So what, 136 since returning from the aisle. So that was good to see. But anyway, if you look at it with Turner, he has been 
really incredible throughout this month. And by the way, Duvall was hitting 483 prior to, or I should say, he hit 483 in April prior to the return from the IL. But anyway, but Turner, just another huge hit in this game as well. Later on, it's 4-2, and he gets a sinker from Michael King. He gets his hands inside it and just sort of muscles it out to the outfield to make it a 5-2 game. Off the bat, not hard hit at all, 74.4 miles per hour. But this guy is a magician with the bat. He just knows, hey, I can just lift this into the outfield. And he got himself in a good count, 2-0, right? So he knew what pitch was coming. He knew he was going to get a fastball. And he just sort of flicked it. And to be able to get your hands inside, that's a really good piece of hitting. He's just a professional hitter. And I mean, you go back to Friday, the big hits. Bottom of the second inning. Herman throws him a bad curveball, crushes it, 101.9 off the bat, home run. And then the grand slam. And look, this the red, that game was already over. But middle, middle, crushes it. 105.6 miles per hour off the bat, and that was a bomb. 429 to the deepest part of the ballpark. It just This guy is putting on a clinic right now. So, man, we talked about Duvall's impact earlier this season. We talked about Yoshida all year. But, man, Turner has been a fantastic external addition to this team. Right now, he's just out of this world. But it's been going this way all month for him. Entering play on Sunday in June, 333, 21st, 614 slugging percentage, 16th. 991 OPS, 21st, and the isolated power, 281, which is 24th. That's just subtracting the slugging percentage from the batting average, and that tells you that 281 number, which is 24th, as I mentioned, that tells you he's hitting for a ton of power. I just love watching him hit. I mean, this guy knows exactly what he's doing every time he goes out there. He's like a scientist. I love watching this guy hit, and he's in his late 30s. He's not a young guy, and he's having an outstanding season for the Red Sox. That's definitely a positive thing, what we've seen from Turner in the month of June. All right. Raffi, quick metric man note on Raffi. So I was reminded of something today in the first game of the doubleheader. So Raffi in the second game, by the way, 108.4 mile per hour single off Severino in that second inning, right? Where then he would later come around on Kike's double. But anyway, in the first game, hits that rocket single in the first inning to make it, uh, comes off the bat 107.1 miles per hour, I should say. I was just reminded, like, he's hitting rockets all over the ballpark, Rafi has been this season. And the raw numbers aren't great, right? So, I mean, you look at it. He came into play on Sunday, hitting 243, career worst, and his on-base percentage is south of 300, career worst. So you think about that. Rafi, and the reason I bring this up is Rafi, in terms of his hard hit rate, balls off the bat 95 plus, he's 12th in all of Major League Baseball, 52.7%. So he's almost 53% of his batted balls are coming off the bat north of 95 so he's hitting rockets all over the place. But the batting average, as we mentioned, is south of 250. So I looked at the guy that was right behind Rafael Devers in hard hit rate. That's Brian Reynolds. He's at 52.5%, which of course is 13th right behind Rafi. But Reynolds is hitting 278 compared to Rafi at 243. So a 35-point difference, despite basically hitting the ball in terms of the hard hit rate at the same frequency. And he has a batting average that is 35 points higher than Rafi, right? So Rafi, with all that loud contact, if you look at it, he's hitting just 247. His average on balls in play is 247. 146th of 159 qualified hitters. What is Reynolds? 320, which is 46 in Major League Baseball. Rafi's at 247. Reynolds is at 320. So it just goes to show you how unlucky Rafi is. Nobody in Major League Baseball should be 12th in hard hit rate, which means you're making a ton of great contact, and 146 in terms of the batting average on balls in play. It just doesn't add up. So hopefully what we saw over the past stretch here where Rafi's been getting a little bit hot, 
is this will be the turn of the luck for Raphael Devers because those numbers together make absolutely no sense. All right, I did want to circle back to this Hulk situation. So the Sox are going to need to find who's going to pitch on Thursday. Whether they want to do another bullpen game, they could clearly do that. Just please, no or Come on, I don't want to see that guy anymore. But anyway, my hope is that Shane Drohan, who he's now up to fifth on SoxProspects.com, highest ranked pitching prospect in the organization. So behind Bayo, I should say. But anyway, fifth on SoxProspects.com. So I know they want to be careful with him. But I just want to see him, man. I really like I'm so fired up as I was talking about like seeing Bayo. So maybe part of it is I just want to see another young pitcher for the Red Sox. But he's up on fifth. He's been climbing up the rankings. And with the Woo Sox, he had two bad outings when he first got up to triple A. So the numbers don't look great if you look at his triple A numbers. But last time out, he had seven punch outs. The strikeouts are coming back because if you look at it at double A this season, he was at 28.1%. Really good number. Only 10 qualified starters at the big league level are north of 28%. I get it, different competition, but he has hit and miss stuff. And if you follow him, he's just made a huge jump in terms of the stuff. So I want to see him. I know he doesn't project to be like an ace level pitcher, but I just love a big league debut. I was so excited for the Bayo debut last year, and obviously it didn't go particularly great. And Bayo was kind of rushed because the Red Sox were dealing with all these injuries to the starting rotation last year, and they rushed a lot of guys up. So I, I don't want them to do it if they don't feel like he's ready. I'm just hoping for it. Selfishly, I'm hoping that we see him on Thursday because there's nothing I like more than a big league debut for a pitcher. All right, by the way, the Yankees situation, you avoid Aaron Judge, which is great. But I mean, this team, it's fun to watch them suck. The catcher's interference, as I mentioned, the box and all that different type of stuff. And they really bailed out the Red Sox because that catcher's interference made it two to one. Kike had just popped up with the bases loaded. So they let the Red Sox off the hook there. They were going to get out of that jam. But unreal, like how bad the Yankees were this weekend. And this is huge, right? Because the Red Sox are now five and one against the Yankees. And they're now 13 and 11 in the division. And I get it. You have less division games this season. But last year, the Red Sox were 26 and 50 in the division. Three and three against the Orioles this year. Four and 0 against Toronto. They had that sweep. They're one and seven against Tampa. And now five and one against the Yankees after the win tonight. So really, Tampa is the team that you can't beat. Nobody can beat Tampa. But the Yankees are in a bad spot. You have to beat up on bad baseball teams. The Yankees right now are playing like a really bad baseball team with the Aaron Judge situation. Like, they're not a good team right now. And the Red Sox are beating them up. They... Split with the Orioles so far this season, they've been good against Toronto. They were terrible against Toronto last year. They were terrible against Tampa last year. So it's good to see the Red Sox taking advantage of a bad team in the division. All right, man, it, this is a roller coaster. this team. I'm telling you, man, like the way that we felt after the game on Tuesday, right? The second game that the Red Sox had lost to the Rockies. It's like, what the hell, man? You built up all this positive momentum after beating the Yankees two games out of three, and then you come back and you lose two games to the Rockies and you're having issues defensively. It's just a mess, right? They couldn't hit with runners in scoring position. To see the offense just explode this weekend, it's, it's really, really good to see, but it's just a weird team, man. Like, they've had some really high highs, like sweeping the Blue Jays this weekend against the Yankees, but they've had some really low lows, like the Rockies series we mentioned. When they got swept by Tampa, the four-game sweep, there's just been some really good moments and some really, really bad moments for this team. So it's nonetheless, it is an entertaining, entertaining team to watch because you don't know what the fuck's going to happen, really, on a game-to-game -game basis with these guys. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days.
Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda. The power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more.